Thank you all. If you haven't already done so, you take just a moment <clears throat> to pass those black pads, and that will help us uh, reach out to those who are visiting. And if you are visiting, we are taking some time this year to work through the book of Acts. And so we are spending the, the bulk of this year in the book of Acts, but we're going to take a break from Acts this morning. Uh, the Lord threw us a curveball last week. We had a winter storm and we canceled the service. And so here, here was the plan. Uh, I, I was out of town for, uh, for Kimbo's family for a wedding and a funeral on the same day. And uh, Jason was going to preach uh, from Acts 3 last week. And today I was going to preach from Acts 4. Uh, but because of the winter storm, that threw, a, threw us a curveball. And, and Acts 3 and 4 are so bound up together. In Acts 3, uh, Peter and John perform this miracle of healing a lame beggar. In Acts 4, they are asked, by what name did you do that? And so they're so bound up together that you can't really skip uh, Acts 3 and, and just go on to Acts 4. And I really didn't want to preach a sermon that Jason had prepared. He put a lot of work into it, a lot of time into it. And so we'll pick up next week where we left off two weeks ago. Uh, Jason's out this week for a funeral himself, a family funeral. And so next week we'll pick back up with Acts. Jason will preach from Acts 3 and, and we'll go from there. This morning, though, we're going to look at Psalm 32. As Ethan mentioned to you, we are in a season of Lent, and, and Lent is a season of patient waiting and preparation. Perhaps the best way to understand it is it's similar to, to, uh, to Advent. Uh, Advent are the weeks prior to Christmas where we consider the incarnation, the birth, the coming of Christ, and we take those weeks prior to Christmas to, to prepare our hearts and to wait in patience uh, for what God did there and coming like us. And, and this season is also a time where we wait patiently for the glory of Good Friday and the excellence of Easter Sunday. And, and we use this season to reflect, to reflect on our sin, to reflect on our need, and, uh, and as Ethan said, to spend it in a spirit of repentance. And so that's, that's what we're going to consider this morning from Psalm 32. If you... Uh, don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the pew rack, and uh, this passage begins on page 462. Let's pray first, and then we'll read God's Word. Heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your Word is unfading, your Word is living, unchanging. Father, you have given us your Word for doctrine, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness that the man and woman of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so our prayer is that the spirit that we've been considering, the Holy Spirit, would go before the reading and preaching of the word, would, uh, the spirit who's alive in every believer, would work to illumine the word this morning to us and that, and that as we consider this uh, beautiful but difficult psalm, that you would do what only you can do. And, uh, and bring about change, that you might show us once again our sin, but also our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Right, psalm 32, we're going to read the entire psalm. This is God's holy word. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man 
against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. May God write his word upon our hearts. I want to take just a moment to, uh, to give you some context, uh, to give you a little bit of background uh, from where this psalm is, is coming from. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, we discover that, that David, uh, King David committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. He, he abused his authority. I don't think it's a stretch to say that he sexually abused Bathsheba. If this, if this were to happen today, what happened in 2 Samuel 11 were to happen today, a man in the position of ultimate power, using his power to take sexual advantage of a married woman, we would call that gross sexual misconduct and abuse. That's what happened. And then after committing adultery, David added insult to injury by having Bathsheba's husband Uriah murdered. And then sometime later, he wrote Psalm 51, sometime after what happened in 2 Samuel 11, uh, where he, he commits adultery, he uh, commits deception, lying, and, uh, and, and murder. He wrote Psalm 51, and Psalm 51 is a beautiful song of joyful, free confession. But between the time that he committed his heinous sins around 2 Samuel 11 and the time, whenever it was that he wrote Psalm 51, he lived and experienced the reality of Psalm 32. And friends, this is true for each of us as well. You will never experience the joy and freedom found in Psalm 51 while you're living in the crucible of Psalm 32. And so with that in mind, I have four observations this morning that I want you to consider. Verses 1 and 2 begin with the same word. They begin with the word blessed, which literally means happy. Happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And so the first thing I want us to consider are a few questions. What is true happiness? What is true happiness? Where does, where does this true happiness come from, and who is it for? And so first, what is true happiness? Well, the Bible describes true happiness, true blessedness, as being right with God. That's what it all comes down to. True happiness, true blessedness, is being right with God. It's being reconciled with God. 
knowing personally that God has forgiven you of your transgressions, that he has covered your sins, and that he has reckoned you right with him. And we see all of that in verse 5. Let me, let me show that to you. First, true happiness is forgiveness for transgression. Being forgiven our transgressions. Transgression is breaking God's law. But, but, but it's more than just committing an offense. It's offending a person. Transgression is offending the Lord himself. And the Bible says that transgression brings guilt and punishment. When we break God's law, when we offend his holy person, we, we, bring, we, we bear guilt and punishment. But notice what David says in verse 1. He's saying, look at what God has done. He's, he crowned my head with happiness because he forgave my transgression. And that word literally means he lifted. He lifts our transgression. This is the word picture that David is painting. Upon our head rest the transgression of breaking God's law and offending God himself. But he, he removes that from us. He lifts it from us and instead puts a crown on its place. He lifts our guilt. He lifts our punishment. He removes his wrath. And so true happiness is only found in being forgiven of our transgressions. And then he says, secondly, happiness is having our sin covered. Throughout this passage, David uses a few different words to describe wrongdoing. And they each mean something a little bit different. Transgression means doing what we ought not do actively participating in those things that we shouldn't do. Sin means missing the mark. Its focus is on, on not doing what we ought to do. But David says, look at what the Lord has done. He has dressed me in garments of joy. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. From Genesis 3 onward, Scripture paints the picture that in our sin, we are naked and exposed, right? In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned. They were naked and they were unashamed, but when they ate of the forbidden tree, uh, Genesis 3 records, the eyes of both of them were open. They knew that they were naked and they were ashamed. They hid themselves in the midst of the garden. And God came and said, Adam, where are you? He said, I hid myself because I was afraid. He said, because I was naked and afraid. And the Lord said, who told you? that you were naked. And as that scene unfolds, God, God there in the first act of atonement kills an animal and takes its skin and clothes Adam and Eve. He covers their nakedness. He covers their sin. And happiness, true happiness, can only be found in being covered and clothed by the Lord, clothed in Christ's righteousness. And he continues, true happiness is the Lord not counting our iniquity against us. And this is a third term. Uh, the word transgressions means actively doing what we ought not do. Sin means not doing what we ought to do. And transgression uh, describes sin as wickedness that twists and perverts the right way. And so it's, it's getting off course. But David says, look at what the Lord has done. He didn't count my iniquity, my crookedness against me. Instead, he made me straight. And what I want you to understand, friends, is that it, it isn't enough to have our transgressions lifted or even our sin covered. Being crooked and wicked, we also need to be made right 
And that is what the Lord does. He makes us right. He covers our sins. He forgives our transgressions. And he makes us right. And that's the only way we'll ever find blessedness or happiness. Now, who's this for? Most of us would say that that happiness, the kind of happiness that David's describing here, the kind of happiness that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount with all those blessed statements, blessed is this man, blessed is that man. We would say that's, that's for Christians. But we all know many Christians that aren't happy, don't we? And so, and so if this happiness, if this blessing is for those who are Christians, why are so many Christians unhappy? The point of Psalm 32 is, is and this is, this is sort of the thesis statement, the point of Psalm 32 is that true happiness is the possession of the confessing Christian, not just the professing Christian. True happiness, true blessedness is the possession of not just of the professing Christian, but the confessing Christian. Happiness comes when we regularly and freely confess our sins. That's why many Christians, while they are truly Christian, are unhappy. Because as they profess Christ, they haven't confessed sin. Happiness is the present, ongoing, and growing reality in the life of a believer who regularly makes confession a practice. And so here's the second observation that I want you to consider. There is a danger in the deceit of concealed sin. So true happiness is the possession, not, not of the forgiven and justified believer, but look what David says, of the believer in whose spirit there is no deceit. Happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. He didn't say in whose spirit there is no guilt. He said, in whose spirit there is no deceit. If you're a Christian, Jesus has paid for your sins, past, present, and future. God has declared you eternally not guilty. You are not guilty. But there's a problem, and you know it as well as I do. You continue to sin. You continue to sin. And so Martin Luther coined this phrase to, to describe this reality that we are not guilty, that we are free, that we are justified, that we are fully righteous, and yet we continue to sin. He, he, he wrote the phrase, simul iustus et peccator. We are at the same time simultaneously justified, right, free, not guilty, and sinners. Does that describe you? Although the price for your sin has been paid, you will not experience freedom if you conceal your sin. David was not talking about the guilt of sin. That's been taken care of. He was talking about living a life freely before the Lord without deceit. We don't just see this in David's life. We see it in the writings of Paul. We very clearly see it in the writing of John. 1 John. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And yet if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's there where we find true happiness, not simply in professing Christ, but in living a life of freedom before the Lord without deceit, without concealing it. 
And so in this psalm, we, we meet David the deceiver. We meet David the truth suppressor. What we've read here until nearly the very end is not the story of happiness, but it's a story of misery. It's a story of inner turmoil, a restlessness of the soul, even a wasting away. And what I want you to understand, David's experience that he's writing a song about is is not the misery of a sinner. It's the misery of a sin concealer. David, as he's pouring his experience onto a page, is not writing about the misery he experienced as a sinner. It's the misery he experienced as a sin concealer. And so the third observation I want you to consider is there are consequences for keeping silent. In 1992, there was a man named Joe Avilia uh, who, was driving, who was driving drunk on a freeway in Fresno, California, and he struck and killed a young lady named Amy Wall. And after the incident, he fled the scene um, and was later arrested a couple days later for second-degree murder. And at his arraignment, he pled not guilty. And then he spent the next six months, before, um, before his trial, he spent the next six months in a sobriety center. And for the first few months while he was in that sobriety center, he, he made excuses. He maintained his innocence. But about three months into that six-month stint, he heard the gospel for the first time. And God changed his heart. And so when he left that sobriety center to, to, to go to trial, he went back to the court and he changed his plea to guilty. And at first, this man Joe, he avoided confession. He avoided ownership. He avoided acknowledgement because he thought the consequences would be too great. But he soon discovered the greater consequences of keeping silent. And David discovered the same thing. There's no freedom in keeping silent. There's no freedom when we conceal our sin. You know, most of us, I was talking to Ray Werner this morning about some spring projects that I have around the house and sort of waiting for the the last sort of hard freeze to happen so that we can do some outside work. And most of us work really hard uh, at landscaping our front yard lives. The place that people see as they drive by so that our life has curb appeal But I spend much less time cleaning my bathroom and my bedroom and my closet, the pantry. I, I, don't, I don't want anyone to see where I really live, where, where my rooms are filled with clutter and mess. But this is where the Lord addresses us. He addresses us in the secret chambers of our heart. And so later, as David confesses in Psalm 51, as he finds joy and freedom, he writes in verse 6, Surely, Lord, you desire truth in the inner parts. And that's what God wants. Truth in the inner parts, because that is where sin resides. And so let me just share with you a handful of consequences of keeping silent. A handful of consequences of of not regularly confessing your sin, owning up to it, acknowledging it, not pursuing repentance. First, one of the consequences is physical destruction. That David wrote in in verse 3, my bones wasted away. Have any of you ever experienced that? Uh, Unconfessed sin can lead to 
can lead to, to, to physical destruction. Now, I have a friend who, um, who engaged in a season of, of sin, sort of blindly, and he couldn't sleep, and he began to lose weight, and he stopped eating. He felt like he had the flu. Now, I'm, I'm, not implying, I'm not implying that God was judging him physically for his sin. What I am implying is that his unconfessed sin took a physical toll on him. Another consequence of sin is a plagued conscience. Verse 3 goes on to say that David was groaning all day long. And, and most scholars uh, believe that he was not describing physical anguish here. His groaning is not physical anguish, but it's the emotional anguish of a plagued conscience. Third, there's a sense of God's fatherly displeasure. Verse 4, he says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. See, as he's concealed his sin, as he hasn't acknowledged it and addressed it and owned up to it, he feels the heavy hand of God upon him. And that's a hard grace, friends. It's a hard grace. Now, I want to be, I want to be clear. I do not believe that God is ever disappointed with his children. It's not a phrase you find in Scripture. And the reason I say that is because the very word disappointment means the experience of unmet expectations. God never has any unmet expectations with you. He always knows what's to expect, doesn't he? He always gets what he expects. However, so I, I just want to split the hair finely, I suppose. Maybe you'll say it's semantic. But I would prefer that we think not in terms of, of the Father being disappointed with us, but certainly having displeasure. Our unconfessed sin can lead to a deep sense of fatherly displeasure. Here's another consequence, a fourth consequence. It can lead to a depression of spirit. At the end of verse 4, he says, My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. And again, he's not talking about his physical strength. That, that phrase literally means my vitality was changed. I think David was depressed. I think he was depressed. Have you ever, I, I'm kind of longing for these days now uh, with these, this cold winter we've had, but have you ever been working out in your yard in the, in the heat of August, third week of August, and you could actually physically feel the energy leaving your body. Have you ever had a season where you have, you have harbored sin and not confessed it, where you could feel spiritual vitality draining away? That's a consequence of keeping silent. And through all of that, as he felt the, the heavy hand of God upon him, as, he, as it took a physical toll, an emotional toll, as he went through a season of depression, David was a stranger to happiness. Was he God's son? Absolutely. Was he a man after his heart? Surely. But he wasn't happy. He was miserable. What I've just described over the first four verses is, is not the condition of a happy man. And perhaps some of you have, have had a season like that where you've experienced the consequences of keeping sin and it feels, it feels like a prison. Now, objectively, if you're a believer, God has freed you from the shackles of sin. 
He has freed you from the shackles of sin, but we can still, still feel imprisoned when we have sin that is unconfessed. And so the fourth thought that I want you to consider is the freedom that comes with true confession and repentance. The freedom that comes. And so I want you to understand, if your faith is in Christ, he has declared you not guilty, he has set you free. And yet, when we do not confess our sin, but instead conceal our sin, it can feel like a prison. We don't feel free. Now, before we consider confession, I want to talk about two other C words, conviction and condemnation. When we sin, as God's children, he will always, always convict us of our sin by the Spirit. That's what we've been considering over the last few weeks through the book of Acts. When the Spirit comes, what does he do within us and among us? The Spirit is the one convicting us of our sin, pointing us back to God's Word and to Christ as the righteous standard and our, our coming up short. And conviction is not a bad thing. Conviction is a wonderful thing. It is an evidence that we are a child of God. Conviction is a confirming evidence that we have the Spirit of God within us. It is, it is a, a joyful thing because it's a reminder that God has not just left us in our sin. But after two decades of pastoral ministry, I'm convinced that many, many believers confuse, confuse conviction with condemnation. Ethan read it a moment ago. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 tells us, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation feels like God has abandoned us. Like he no longer loves us. Like our sin has undone the reconciliation that Jesus accomplished. Condemnation has no place in the life of a Christian, but conviction has a vital place in the life of a Christian. Let's not confuse those two. Also, many, many Christians, as they're convicted for their sin, they continue to remain silent. And so what I want you to, to continue walking this path with me is that conviction is always meant to lead to confession. I believe David was convicted one chapter after his sin is recorded when Nathan confronts him tells him the story about the rich man and the poor man, the poor man with one land, the rich man with a whole herd, and the rich man takes the poor man's and kills it and feeds it to his guest. And David says, that man should be put to death. Nathan says, you're the man. I, I believe at that point, David begins to experience conviction, but he doesn't confess, and he's not repentant. Conviction is meant to lead to confession. Look again at verse 5. David says, then, after experiencing the heavy hand of God, his fatherly displeasure, a wasting away, depression, emotional turmoil, he says, then I acknowledged my sin to you. I no longer covered my iniquity, because you're the one who does that. You cover iniquity. You clothe me with Christ's righteousness. But I no longer covered up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Conviction is meant to lead to confession, and confession is meant to lead to repentance, and it's there we find true happiness. So many Christians uh, confuse confession 
with condemn or conviction with condemnation, I think we also confuse confession with repentance. Confession is acknowledgement. Confession is acknowledgement. It's saying, yes, guilty. When the Spirit of God comes to us and says, you are the man, it's, it's saying, yes, you're right, I am the man. But repentance goes several steps further. Repentance is change. Confession can happen quickly. Repentance takes time. Repentance is turning and turning loose of. So to borrow a phrase from Eugene Peterson, repentance is a long obedience in the same direction. Repentance takes time. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist calls upon the Pharisees to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The fruit of repentance doesn't just miraculously appear. It takes time to grow. The Spirit has to do the work of tending and pruning. And so a lot of times, a lot of times, and, and we, we, I experienced this this past week in a situation, a lot of times we think that if we confess our sin, that is the same as repenting of our sin. No. Confession is saying, yes, I got caught hand in the, in the cookie jar. I'm guilty. Repentance is the long process of turning from sin back to Christ. If we confess our sin but do not repent from our sin. God's work isn't done. After, I uh, told you about this man, Joel Avilia, after six months in the sobriety center, he came out, he changed his plea from not guilty to guilty, and he was sentenced to 12 years in prison. He did seven. And after seven years, he was paroled. And he made an appointment with Derek, Amy's brother, the the brother of the woman he'd killed, made an appointment with Rick, Amy's father. And he, and he said to Derek, I'm, I'm sorry for what I did. I hope that you can forgive me. That's so encouraging to hear, isn't it? So encouraging to hear. And a lot of times that's what we do. I, I'm sorry. I hope you can forgive me. But friends, repentance doesn't stop there. That's just the beginning. Derek did forgive him, but it didn't end with those words. Imagine this, Joe, the, the man who had killed his sister, and Derek, they began to travel together and speak together about the power of the gospel and the gift of reconciliation. And Joe exhibited fruit in keeping with repentance. For 17 years now, he's worked for prison fellowship. He's now an elder in his church, New Hope Community Church. Now, now, someone who's skeptical might say, well, he's just trying to atone for his sin, right? He's trying to make up for the heinous thing that he did. He's trying to um, feel better about himself. I, I don't believe that after reading his story this week. I believe that he recognizes that repentance is walking along obedience in the same direction. And he says now, 18 years later, that he's happier and more free than he ever was before he went to prison. Why is that? Because he discovered the joy of the gospel. The joy of the gospel, which is experientially received through confession, repentance, and reconciliation. A way to understand the gospel is good news. That's what, it, that's what the word means. The very fact 
that it's good news is it's a message proclaimed to us that happens outside of us and we make no contribution to the good news work of Jesus. But our response to it, we're not passive. Our response is confession, repentance, ownership, and walking in obedience. Day in and day out, we're gonna sin. You know, I had someone criticize me once because they said, you just, you don't think that we can ever get better. I said, no, 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 no. I just, you know, the divines in 1646, when they were um, writing the Confession of Faith in 1647, they were writing the larger catechism, says, um, can, can any man perfectly keep the law of God? Their response is, no. No mere man can keep the law of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. And so I'm just writing the coattails of our Westminster forefathers. I don't believe you're as good as you think you are. I don't believe I'm as good as I think I am. I think that I'm going to sin daily in thought, word, and deed. That's not making excuses. It's reminding me that I constantly need to keep short accounts, to run to Christ, to take ownership, to confess, to repent, I mentioned Luther, Martin Luther, a moment ago in his uh, phrase uh, that we are simultaneously just and sinful. When he nailed his uh, 95 theses to the chapel door there in Wittenberg, the very first one, number one of all the 95, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ has willed that the whole of life be one of repentance. All of life. Day in, day out. As, as we sin and the Spirit convicts us of our sin, it's this liturgy that Ethan was talking about, this practice, right? We get into these habits. Let's try and break the habit of sin, but when we sin, it's the habit of, as the Spirit convicts me, I confess. As I confess, I continue the process of repentance. As I do that, I find and experience true joy, true happiness, true blessedness. Not for what I've done, but for what Christ is doing in me. Let's thank him for that in prayer. Lord God, we thank you that you have not merely declared us pardoned and righteous, but then left us in, in, our, in our patterns of sin to figure out a way out. We, we, we look forward to that day as we come to this table. We look forward to that day when this, when this table will be the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we will eat and drink with you and the saints throughout history for eternity. And we will no longer sin. We will have nothing left to confess. We will be made perfectly glorious, fully formed into the image of Christ without sin. But until that day, as we, we engage uh, this, this faithful walk in fits and starts, we sin, we see our sin, we run to our Savior. We sin, we see our sin, we run to our Savior. Would you do for us what we can't do for ourselves? Show us, show us again our sin. Remind us again of what Christ has done. Help us to cling fa fast to Jesus, who is both the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.